All righty, everybody. Well, let's open our Bibles, if we could, to the book of Zechariah, chapter 7 and verse 11. Finished verse 10 last time. And as you know, um, as we continue Wednesday evenings through the book of Zechariah, the book begins, as you know, chapter 1, with an introductory call to repentance. And then beginning in verse 7 all the way through the end of chapter 6 are eight night visions. So these are basically eight visions that Zechariah received in a single night. And when you put them all together, it's really about God's future for Israel with a special emphasis on the temple. So that's a big deal because the situation happening in Zechariah is Zechariah along with his contemporary Haggai, are exhorting that uh, post-exilic community that just came back from the 70-year captivity to rebuild the second temple. And you go to the very bottom of the screen there, and that whole section ends with the coronation of the high priest Joshua which is a picture, really, it typifies Jesus in his millennial reign. So that is the end game for Israel, and that's what all of those visions are pushing towards. And so that's why that section ends there with the coronation of the high priest Joshua. And that moves us into part three, which we started last time, which is chapters seven and eight which is basically a question, giving God, through Zechariah, an opportunity to provide four answers. So the question is, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, should we, um, it came from the men, some of the ambassadors from a city called Bethel, seeking out the priests and the prophets, should we continue to mourn the destruction of the temple, which took place 70 years earlier under Nebuchadnezzar? And once that question is asked, now God gives four answers, um, the first of which we've already gone through, chapter 7, verses 4 through 7, the second of which we stopped in the middle of last time, chapter 7, verses 8 through 14. But God basically says through these through these four oracles, starting with the first one, you know, you're upset about the effect but not the cause. So you're upset that the temple was destroyed, but you're not upset about the reason why the temple was destroyed. The reason the temple was destroyed and the reason the 70-year captivity started is because you disobeyed my covenant. And with all of your fasting and mourning over these past 70 years, not a single one of you is upset about the right thing. So it's like it's kind of like dealing with somebody 
who gets caught doing something wrong and, you know, they show all this emotion. And really what they're upset about is the fact that they got caught. Um, they're, they're upset about the consequences that they have to bear when they ought to be focusing on the misbehavior that led to the crime leading to the consequences. And so that's what he's getting at there in the first uh, oracle by way of a divine answer. He condemns them just for empty ritual. So commemorating the destruction of the temple, but not understanding why it was destroyed. And that moves into the second response from God, beginning in chapter 7, verses 8 through 14, where God says, okay, let me point out now the specific ways that you violated my Mosaic covenant. So in that second one there, he's getting into the business of pointing out their specific covenantal violations. So um, verses 8 through 10, which we covered, are the covenant requirements. God gave the nation of Israel a covenant. And in this case, it was the Mosaic covenant. And God expected Israel to obey the covenant. Now, the Mosaic covenant and obedience to the covenant doesn't make Israel God's special nation. They already had that relationship with God nationally through a covenant given 600 years earlier called the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant comes alongside the Abrahamic covenant at Mount Sinai six centuries later, and outlines the conditions for blessing and cursing. So you notice that Brother Jim, Pastor Jim, when he led us in prayer earlier, he quoted 1 John 1, verse 9, and said, let's take a few moments of silence to get right with the Lord via God's promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. You know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to, f- to cleanse us of our sins and to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And he was very clear that the reason we do that is not to become Christians again, right? No no one gets saved through 1 John 1.9. Rather, what 1 John 1.9 does is it allows broken fellowship between us and God to be restored. So, I hate to do this with my wife present, but it's like a marriage, okay? If you're married to someone, that's your position legally, okay? Now, spouse A can do something to offend spouse B. And it's never her offending me, it's the other way around, of course, as we all know, right? Um... So when I do that, when I offend her, and I'm actually pretty good at doing that, to be honest with you. Um, so it's one of those things that just comes naturally, you know. So when I offend her, that doesn't make us unmarried. Now, she might want to get unmarried, but at that point, we're still married. That's our position. But my moment-by-moment fellowship with her, enjoyment of her is injured 
at the point of the offense. So for, so for, I need to apologize and, and all that kind of stuff. And that doesn't, when I apologize, it's not like we're married all over again. We don't walk down the aisle again. I mean, that's a done deal. What it does is it restores intimacy within the marriage. It restores broken fellowship within the marriage. That's what 1 John 1, 9 is to the believer. By way of analogy, that's what the Mosaic Code or law was to Israel. I mean, it had built in it sacrificial system and what they were supposed to do and when they broke God's law, how they were supposed to get right with God. And they they were supposed to honor the Mosaic law not to become God's nation again. They already were God's nation because of the Abrahamic covenant. But to restore broken fellowship. So in the prophets that you study, and Zechariah, of course, is a case in point, is Zechariah keeps pointing out the infractions of the covenant that led to the destruction of the temple. So you disobeyed the covenant of Moses, and consequently, God brought discipline. But when God brought discipline, God didn't suddenly sever his relationship to you as a nation. He can't do that because of the Abrahamic covenant. So that's what's going on in this second oracle. It's outlining the Mosaic law that was broken, which led to the destruction of the temple. And the nation of Israel was upset about the destruction of the temple. They were not upset about the covenant violations that led to the destruction of the temple. So verses 8 through 10 are the covenant requirements. And then verses 11 and 12 are is the covenant rebellion. Okay, And we left off last time with verse 11. So with that background in mind, look at verse 11. I mean, what was Israel doing that was so wrong that led to the destruction of the temple 70 years earlier? It says, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. So they just refused to pay attention to the covenant and they refused to pay attention to the prophets that were pointing to the covenant. And when you refuse to pay attention, God takes that as a rejection of his word. So there's there's all kinds of ways to reject God's word. I mean, you could you could you could stand up and oppose the preacher. Um, you could take your Bible and burn it. Or you can just ignore the Bible. You know, you can organize your life where it's so busy that you really have no time for God or his word. And God takes all of the above as a rejection of him. And that's basically what they were doing. They weren't, uh, in the case cited here, actively opposing the prophets. They just were not, you know, paying attention to them. Just ignoring them. And so that's what led to the destruction of the temple. They just had lifestyles that were enmeshed in all kinds of other things, and the Word of God was going out, and they just sort of pretended like the Word of God wasn't going out at all. 
It's like dealing with your kids when they're real young, or maybe when they're older for that matter, and you tell them to do something, and they pretend like they didn't hear you. So the philosophy in our home is um, uh, delayed obedience is disobedience. You guys have heard that, right? And, of course, my parents never had to apply that to me because I was a perfect child, right? No. I mean, we all do that. We just pretend like, oh, what did you say? I mean, I didn't really hear it. Or, And, and the reality of the situation is we pretend we didn't hear because we don't want to hear because we want to be disobedient. And that was essentially happening here to the children of Israel prior to the captivity. This is why their temple was destroyed. So in this whole feast and uh, uh, fasting that they're involved in, none of them are upset about that point. And so it's going to take Zechariah to get this point across. They're upset they got caught. They're not upset at what led to the crime or the consequence, I should say. Let me rephrase that. They're upset about doing the time, but they're not upset about the crime leading to doing the time. If you don't want to do the time, then don't do the crime. Zechariah is pointing out the crime. So they refuse to pay attention. He, he says they, as they refused to pay attention, they were actually turning a stubborn shoulder against God. And it reached a point where they just drowned out the prophets by literally taking their fingers and sticking them in their ears. It's kind of the thing that you read about in um, Nazi Germany. And when Olivier Melnick is here, he'll tell you all kinds of stories about it uh, in our prophecy conference coming up May the 14th and 15th. Which, by the way... We need to see your name in our registration page, if you can do that for us. Even if you're a Sugarland Bible Church regular, um, we can only accommodate so many people. And so we're asking anybody that wants to come in the building, May 14th and 15th, even a Sugarland Bible Church charter member, we need to see your name inside the registration which you can find on our homepage. Now, why did I start talking about that? I have no idea. Oh, yeah, Olivier Melnick, one of the speakers, um, he talks about how in Hitler's Germany, as the Jews were being shuttled away in boxcars to, to concentration camps, the train would literally pass by um, churches with screaming Jews inaudible uh, distance where, where they could the, the churchgoers could hear the Jews in the boxcars. And so rather than dealing with the situation, because they were in living in denial and pretending that this wasn't happening, um, they just sang their worship songs louder. So if you sing your worship songs louder, um, I guess you can ignore screaming Jews in boxcars. And so that was sort of the state of things in the church world in Hitler's Nazi Germany. And that's kind of the thing that's happening here. They're just sort of putting their fingers in their ears and kind of, you know, silencing um, the voice of the prophets. Now, this is not the only time in Jewish history this happened. Stephen, 
in Acts 7 verse 57 gave a very politically incorrect sermon that spans basically the whole chapter, 50 plus verses. And he basically condemns the nation of Israel for their guilt. He says, you guys always get it wrong. Uh, That's how it was in ancient times. Look at how you treated the prophets. And you're doing the same thing right now by rejecting Jesus. And he goes on like this for 50 plus verses. And you read, you read what he says, and it's no wonder they picked up stones to kill him. I mean, it's just a stunning indictment that he gives of first century Israel for their failure to accept Jesus as their Messiah when he was right there in their midst. And he says this is just a common pattern of the Hebrew people. Um, you're just replicating, you know, what your forebears did. And it literally says in Acts 7, verse 57, but they shouted with loud voices and covered their ears. That's what it says. And rushed at him with one mind. So you want to talk about the cancel culture? I mean, they started shouting over him. And then they started to, you know, put their hands over their ears where they couldn't hear him. And then that didn't work. And so they finally rose up to to kill him. And that's what Zechariah is talking about there in verse 11 when they stopped their ears. Um, and they just pushed out of their minds all of the warnings that God had given leading to the destruction of the temple. So he goes on here talking about covenant rebellion. And if you look at verse 12, it says, They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear. Now, there is a doctrine, unfortunately, that's enjoying resurgence in what's called the neo-Calvinist movement. Um, It's taught by people like John MacArthur, John Piper, a number of them. It's the anachronism tulip in the Calvinistic system, and the T stands for total depravity. And what they mean by it is man is like a rock. He's so far dead in his trespasses and sins, he's like a rock. And he has absolutely no ability to believe on his own. And even when the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, it really has not much effect because of this overemphasis that they have on total depravity. I believe in total depravity, obviously, but not the way it's being defined by the neo-Calvinist movement. So you're like a rock. You're sort of in an insensate state. John MacArthur uses the word cadaver. You're totally dead. And the only reason anybody gets saved is God, on the front end, imparts the gift of faith to some. And if God didn't do that, no one could get saved. Neo-Calvinism. God actually, in their way of thinking, regenerates people so that they can believe. 
Now, who gets the gift of faith? Who gets regenerated so they can believe? It's the fraction of the human race that happens to be the elect. They're the fortunate ones. If they're chosen by God, then they get the gift of faith. They get regenerated so that they can believe. And the rest of the human race is basically predestined to go into hell. So there will be people showing up in hell in their system that had absolutely no choice in the matter. Okay? Neo-Calvinism. It's very different than the model of soteriology that we teach here. That God convicts the world, John 16, verses 7 through 11, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin because they do not believe. God has this whole world under conviction for the one sin that will send you into the lake of fire forever, unbelief. Going through one's life, never having trusted in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit is convicting all of planet Earth for as I talk, as I'm speaking. And then when you respond to that convicting ministry, because God is not going to believe for you. God is not going to impart to you some magical gift of faith, the way the neo-Calvinists teach this. When you respond by way of faith, by trusting in Christ, then you are regenerated. So here's a fancy word, ordo salutis. Can you say that with me? Ready? Ordo salutis. It's a Latin word which means order of salvation. The neo-Calvinist movement says, here's the ordo salutis. Gift of faith, regeneration. Gift of faith to some, regeneration to those who receive the gift of faith. We don't teach that. The proper order, ordo salutis, which just means order of salvation. That's all that word means, or that phrase means, is conviction, faith, regeneration. So that's how we teach the doctrine of soteriology. First, you're convicted of your need to trust in Christ. The Holy Spirit is not working in the world to morally reform the world. He's not bothering unbelievers about profanity or gambling or pornography. He's bothering them about the only sin that will send them to hell, which is unbelief. So once a person comes under that conviction, God is not going to give you the gift of faith and regenerate you. You have to believe. It's up to your volition to believe. And once you place your faith in Christ, then you're regenerated. The neo-Calvinist system rejects that because they don't think people have an ability to believe at all because they're, they're dead like a rock. So what they've done is they've taken total depravity and they've blown it way out of proportion into something that's unbiblical. Do I believe in total depravity? Absolutely. Do I believe that the Holy Spirit has to do a work to bring you to the point of faith? I absolutely believe that. It's called conviction. If the Holy Spirit wasn't doing that, none of us could get saved. 
But the only thing the Holy Spirit is going to do is bring the person to the point of decision. God is not going to override um, the volition of a human being. Because if God overrode volition, he would not be respecting how he has manufactured us as image bearers of God. So in the neo-Calvinistic system, total depravity means inability. And why am I bringing up all of this? Well, they love to quote verses like this in verse 12. They could not hear. That's what it says, right? The problem is they left out the first part of the verse. Why could they not hear? Because of their own volition. Finish the verse. It says they made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear. So what you'll hear from neo-Calvinists is repetition of Bible verses, like they could not hear, but they won't give you the first part of the verse that indicates that they put themselves in that position. So in neo-Calvinism with MacArthur, Piper, R.C. Sproul, all of these types of people, is they go on and on about Pharaoh and how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You know, you know that, those scriptures in the book of Exodus. What they won't talk about is probably six times before God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You can just track it down as you go through the book of Exodus chronologically in order. Is It says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It says that six times. And then finally on the sixth or seventh time, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God gave Pharaoh over to what he wanted. But you see, when Pharaoh finds himself in hell, he's not going to be able to point the finger at God and say, you never gave me the opportunity. Um, In the neo-Calvinistic system, by equating depravity with inability, you will have people showing up in hell that had absolutely no choice in the matter at all. And in this, I'm going to call it sick, what they're teaching it's it's so uh, beyond <laughs> what the totality of the scripture teaches. To me, it's it's a sickness. As people are screaming in hell, as the flame is rising up, God is somehow glorified in that. Now, I'm sorry, but my Bible says God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And if people find themselves in hell, you can't blame God for it. Because God provided his son. And then God provided the convicting ministry of the spirit to bring people to their senses in spite of their depravity. So before you buy into a system of inability by looking at a single portion of scripture, they could not hear Look at everything that the scripture says on the subject. And if you back up in the verse, it says they couldn't hear because they made their hearts like flint. God didn't make their hearts like flint. They made their hearts like flint. And that's what prevented them from hearing the words of the prophets. And this is what brought about the divine discipline that God imposed um, with the 70-year captivity. 
you continue on in verse 12, and it goes on and it says, They made their hearts like flint, so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Now, when it talks about former prophets, what prophets is he speaking of? He's speaking of the pre-exilic prophets that warned over and over again, this is what's going to happen to the nation, and this is what's going to happen to the temple as long as you keep disobeying God's covenant. So former prophets would be pre-exilic prophets, pre-exile. Zechariah and Haggai are post-exilic prophets. But Zechariah is saying, what got you into the mess you got into is you didn't listen to people like me that were telling you this stuff on the front end of the captivity. You'll notice the words law and words. Verse 12. They wouldn't listen to the law and the words of the prophets. What does that mean, the law and the words? The prophets showed up during times of national disobedience and filed a lawsuit. The Hebrew there for lawsuit is reeb. In English, it looks like R-I-B, like rib, but I think it's pronounced reeb. And basically what the prophets are doing is they're literally filing a lawsuit. And they're pointing out the specific violations of the Mosaic Covenant and the consequences that will come. And basically their point is, hey, do you like the consequences you're experiencing as a nation right now? Well, guess what? If you don't turn around and go back to the covenant, things are going to get worse. In fact, it's going to get so bad that you're going to be dispersed from your own land. And so if you can understand that, you understand what all of these prophets are doing in your Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Haggai, they're all saying the same thing. They keep talking about the covenant because it's the ignoring of the covenant that was creating the consequences. So in all of this fasting that they were doing, none of of them were fasting for that reason. They were fasting that the temple was destroyed, but they weren't fasting related to the covenant violations that led to the destruction of the temple. So here is uh, Hosea chapter 4 and verse 1. And this is so typical of the prophets. It says, Listen to the word of the Lord, you sons of Israel, because the Lord has a case. See the lawsuit that's being filed there? I mean, that's... That's that's beautiful legal terminology. Listen to the word of the Lord, you sons of Israel, because the Lord has a case, Reb, against the inhabitants of the land. And then Hosea goes on and he starts describing the violations of the Mosaic Covenant. There's no faithfulness. There's no loyalty. There's no knowledge of God in the land. Um, His near contemporary... Micah says the exact same thing. Micah 6, 1 and 2, it says, Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise and plead your, what's the next word? Case. You see the legal terminology here? The the reeb. 
Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment. Isn't that legal terminology? Listen to the indictment by the Lord and your enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case, there it is again, against his people and he will dispute with Israel. So God is always calling them back to the Mosaic Covenant. And he had a right to do it because they entered into the covenant with him at Sinai. So he's just holding them to the terms of the covenant. And if you understand that point, you can understand what all of these prophets with these weird sounding names that a lot of us have trouble even pronouncing, you know, Zephaniah, Obadiah, Joel, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Haggai, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're all just doing the same thing over and over again. They're showing up during times of national disobedience and they're filing the reeb, the lawsuit. And they're saying, the reason you're having trouble as a nation is because of this issue. Violation of the covenant. And if you repent, things will change for you nationally. But if you don't repent, it's going to get a lot worse because you're going to be kicked out of your land. And how did the children of Israel treat all of those prophets? Just stick your fingers in your ears. That's what it says, right? Pretend like they're not talking. Change the channel. Cancel them from YouTube. (laughs) Um, The cancel culture. Anybody speaking the truth, you just um, ignore them or get rid of them. Don't, Don't let them teach anything in the public schools. Don't let them teach anything on media. You know, because we really we don't want to hear all this stuff. And this is what led to the destruction of the temple. And in 70 years of tears, none of them were dealing with this issue. Uh, that's why Zechariah is bringing this stuff up. Look at verse 12 again. It says, The law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Notice, by his spirit. When Zechariah is preaching, he's preaching not his own message. His words are being guided by the spirit of God. When Isaiah is preaching, he's not preaching his own message. His words are being guided by the spirit of God. And it's the same with all of the other prophets. The former prophets he had sent by his spirit. So you reject Isaiah, you reject Zechariah, you reject Haggai. You're not really rejecting Isaiah, Haggai, Zechariah. You're rejecting the Holy Spirit that's guiding these prophets. It's kind of like, I think it's in First Samuel where the people are in rebellion and the God tells Samuel, who was taking the whole thing very personally, I guess. Samuel, God's anointed at the time. They're not, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Because I'm the one who's guiding your message via the Holy Spirit. So the world needs to understand this. Um, you're not rejecting a, a, a a church, you're not rejecting a teacher. People play these little games, you know, I, I like this teacher, I don't like that teacher. 
This guy parts his hair on the correct side. This guy doesn't. This guy's too thin. This guy's too fat. This guy talks too long. This guy's not loud enough. I mean, you hear all these critiques of Bible teachers. And, you know, really at the end of the day, to be completely honest with you, if it's a faithful teacher, they're not rejecting the teacher. I mean, what they're saying about the teacher is just a masquerade for what's really happening in their hearts. They're rejecting the Lord. And that's very important to understand in ministry because as you have success or lack thereof, it's very easy to sort of take the whole thing personally. Gosh, if I had just said it this way or use this slide or use this verse, maybe it would be different. And the Lord says, no, it wouldn't be different at all. It's a condition of the heart of the people. If you honor the servant of the Lord, you honor the Lord. If you reject the servant of the Lord for whatever reason, you're basically rejecting the message of the Lord. And so that's why there's this emphasis on his spirit. You have to understand that this is a very high view of scripture we're talking about here. That we believe the former prophets, in fact the whole Bible, was brought into existence by the spirit of God. Jesus in Matthew 23, verses 43 and 44, quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But right before Jesus quotes that, he says this, he said to them, How does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying... When he quotes Psalm 110, he says David wrote that. But it wasn't just David writing that. It was David in the Spirit wrote that. So if you reject Psalm 110 verse 1, you're not rejecting David. You're rejecting the Spirit that prompted David to write those words. Um... And you see the whole thing bound up right here in verse 12. The law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. I found this uh, quote from Joyce Baldwin in her commentary on Zechariah. And she says concerning this verse, this remarkable doctrine of the Holy Spirit as mediator of God's word to the prophets, who were themselves its mediator, has no parallels in the prophetic books. Zechariah is the first to record this aspect of the doctrine of the Spirit. So it's the Spirit behind Isaiah that's important. And if you reject Isaiah, you reject the Holy Spirit that prompted Isaiah to put, to give his, bring forth his ministry and to give us the book of Isaiah. When you reject a Bible teacher today that's faithful, you're not rejecting that Bible teacher. You're rejecting the Spirit-led message that that Bible teacher is communicating. So that's why God says to Samuel, don't take it personally that they're rejecting you because they're really not rejecting you. You know, they're ultimately rejecting me. And 
you continue on in verse 12, towards the very end of the verse, it says, Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Why would it say that? Because that's how the Mosaic covenant was set up. It's what's called, I've used this expression before, a suzerain-vassal treaty, where the suzerain or the superior comes alongside the vassal, the inferior, and says, if you obey the covenant text, I'll bless you. If you disobey the covenant text, I'll curse you. This is a common bilateral treaty in the ancient Near East. And God condescended to the level of the Hebrews who knew these treaties. And God says, I'll give you my own suzerain vassal treaty. So the whole book of Deuteronomy is laid out like a suzerain vassal treaty. This is something called form criticism where you're studying the form of treaties of the ancient Near East, and then you read the book of Deuteronomy, and you say, oh my word, look at that. The book of Deuteronomy is, the whole book is laid out the exact same way. So there's always a preamble. Then there's a prologue, which sort of traces the historical interaction between the parties before they entered into this treaty. And then there's the covenant obligations, what the vassal is supposed to obey to be blessed by the suzerain. And then there's storage and reading instructions where the covenant is to be reviewed regularly by the vassal. And then when this covenant is entered into, witnesses are called. And then there's this pivotal section in suzerain-vassal treaty language of blessings and curses. If you obey the suzerain, here's all the blessings you can expect. If you as the vassal disobey the suzerain, here's all the curses that you can expect. And the book of Deuteronomy is laid out the same way. We have a preamble. We have a prologue tracing the relationship between God and Israel before the Mosaic law was entered into. Then... Deuteronomy 5 through 26 is what Israel had to do to be blessed. And this has nothing to do with whether they were God's nation. They already had that six centuries earlier through the Abrahamic covenant. This is the condition for blessing in that relationship. You know, you, you can go out tonight, folks, as a Christian. And if, you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can go out tonight and you could... Completely cater to the sin nature. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to explain all the different ways out there where you can do that. And that will not alter your position before God a millimeter. Because of once saved, always saved. Oh, well cool, then why not just, why not, let's all go do it. Because Whom the Lord loves, the Lord what? Chastens. You're going to bring into your life all kinds of consequences that you don't want. That really have nothing to do, these consequences, with whether you're a Christian or not. 
if we can understand that with us in terms of personal salvation, then you have a perfect understanding of God's dealings with Israel, who were God's nation because of the Abrahamic covenant, but the Mosaic covenant at Sinai six centuries later gave the cycles of discipline and blessing for obedience. And those are all laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So this is why the destruction of the temple happened, because Deuteronomy 28, verses 49 through 50, I'm cycling through this fast, because I think I had that verse later, says, at the height of disobedience, okay, this is 1,500 years before Christ showed up. This was announced. When was the book of Zechariah written? Anybody remember? Probably about 520 to 518. Which means what I'm reading here is on the books for a thousand years. Zechariah is not saying, hey, here's some new truth. He's just reiterating what God said he would do a thousand years earlier at Mount Sinai. I mean, a thousand years is a long time when you think about it. I mean, they had all this covenantal language on the books that they were supposed to regularly review. They knew fully well the consequences of their rebellion, yet they ignored all of this. They, the prophets would show up and remind them. They would stop up their ears. And here they've been, you know... Fasting for 70 years over the destruction of the temple and not a single one of them understands this. Because if you understand this, you'll understand why the temple was destroyed. So one, a thousand years earlier, God said at Sinai, the Lord, this is the height of their disobedience. God says, this is what I will do if you keep violating my covenant. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. From the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation with a defiant attitude who will show no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. I'm going to raise up a nation to bring you into discipline. Now God did that with the northern kingdom through the Assyrians, who were not nice people, in 722 B.C. God did it a second time with the remaining southern kingdom that God disciplined through the hands of the Babylonians, who also weren't nice people, in 586 B.C. And when the nation of Israel said to Jesus in the first century, thanks but no thanks, as the great theologian Yogi Berra says, it's deja vu all over again, God did the exact same thing with the Romans to Israel in AD 70. So you see a pattern here? The principle is given in the Mosaic Law, and all God is doing in the rest of the Bible is bringing the cycles of discipline, which he has a right to do, because they at Sinai entered into this treaty with God. This is why the temple was destroyed. 
So 70 years of mourning, no one's thinking about this. They're thinking about the effect, but not the cause. Zechariah is pretty good at bringing up the cause and condemning them for empty ritual. Um, you looked, and that's why God, verse 12, brought his wrath against his people. You'll see the word wrath there at the end of verse 12. What does wrath mean? It means the cycles of discipline were so severe, it was actually the wrath of God. But, that's not the end, right? Because now God begins to talk about covenant judgment. Verses 13 and 14. Look at what he says in verse 13. And just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord. So, I'm shouting at you guys and nobody wants to listen. So I'm going to put you into a circumstance through divine discipline where you're shouting at me. And now God says, it's my turn not to listen. You know, God is very, can be very sarcastic. Um, every, you know, we've used this example. Every one of the Egyptian plagues was designed to mock an Egyptian deity. Oh, you like the Nile so much, you want to worship the Nile. God turns the whole thing to blood red. How do you like it now? Oh, you like frogs, you want to worship frogs. I'll multiply them all over Egypt. How do you like frogs now? They started to worship their own firstborn. So what did God do in Plague 10? He killed all of the firstborn all over Egypt. Where's your deity now? And And... and as you become sensitive to this, you'll see God using using sarcasm. You wouldn't listen to me, I'm not going to listen to you during the discipline. In fact, you go back to the law of Moses, and God said he would do that a thousand years earlier. He says in Deuteronomy 28, which is that chapter that gives the cycles of discipline, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze. And the earth, which is under you, iron. You're going to pray to me, and it's like praying to the piece of bronze in the sky that's blocking the path. I don't know if you've ever felt that way with God. I've felt that way with God when I've stepped out of line until I've gotten right with the Lord in terms of restoration of fellowship. I've prayed. I've cried out. And it's like you're talking to a piece of metal that's blocking the path. By the way, 1 Peter 3, you know what it says in verse 7 to the husband? If a husband mistreats his wife, then his very prayers are hindered. So, well... There's a lot we could say about that. So what did God do? God scattered them. But I, verse 14, but I scattered them with a storm. Uh, I scattered them with a storm wind among the nations whom they have not known. 
Now, I don't think this here is just speaking of the Babylonian captivity because when they went into the Babylonian captivity, they only went into one nation. I think this is a foreshadowing of A.D. 70 where they would be pushed into all the nations. Charles Feinberg correctly says Babylon was a foreshadowing of the worldwide diaspora of the Jews. I don't know if you catch caught the sarcasm here, where God tells the Jews, oh, do you like being like the rest of the nations? Well, you can join them. You can join them until I'm ready to recycle you back into your land. That's sarcasm. Um, by the way, that's why the nation of Israel wanted a king. And they, they weren't going to wait on God for a king. They wanted Saul. Because he was tall. So watch out for those tall guys. <laughs> and they should have known better because Saul was from the wrong tribe. The kings are supposed to come from which tribe? Judah, Saul was a Benjamite, but they were in such a hurry to get their first king that they just laid hands on this guy Saul. That, that, by the way, is why the New Testament concerning church leadership says don't lay hands too quickly on somebody. Make sure that they are God's man. Because a lot of churches have gone down the tank because they want to find a pastor so bad or they want to find a leader of ministry so bad they just rush the wrong person you know, into the role. That's what they did with Saul. And the reason they did it is 1 Samuel 8, verse 5, they wanted to be like all the nations. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. Oh, you want to be like all the nations? Then I'll kick you out of your land and you just have a great time in the diaspora joining the rest of the nations. And while you're out of the land, the land of Israel will lie in desolation. Also verse 14, second part of the verse, thus the land is desolate behind them so that no one went back and forth for they made the pleasant land desolate. And, of course, if you're tracking with us on Sunday morning, Sunday school, I've used this quote here from Mark Twain talking about what the land of Israel was like in 1867. I mean, Mark Twain, I don't know what he knew about the Bible. Not much from what I can tell. It's interesting that he uses the exact same language describing the land of Israel. He says a desolate country. Um, a silent, mournful expanse, a desolation is here that can't, that not even imagination and grace with the pomp of life and action. It's interesting how he keeps using the word desolate. That's exactly what Zechariah said would happen. In other words, you're, you're mourning about the destruction of the temple, but you're not mourning about the cause that led to the destruction of the temple. And Zechariah says, and this prophet showed up, and you closed your ears so you wouldn't listen. And Zechariah says, you know what? The whole thing's going to happen again. This time, though, you're not going to be pushed into Babylon. You're going to go into worldwide dispersion, which is where Israel has been 2,000 years 
and in modern times recycled back into their land. By the way, before the land became desolate, it at one time was pleasant. Thus the land is desolated behind them so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land. It was a beautiful place to live prior to the disciplining hand of God, for they made the pleasant land desolate. So God says, when you're in the land, it's going to be pleasant. When you're out of the land, it's going to be desolate. And that's exactly what what has happened. What is God doing? He's making good on what he said he would do a thousand years earlier in the Mosaic Covenant. This is the most depressing study, Pastor, I've ever heard this church. Well, there's some good news coming next week. Because we're going to start the third oracle there, which is a prediction of restoration. So God is faithful to fulfill the curses for disobedience, but he's also faithful to fulfill the blessings for obedience. And we start looking at that with oracle number three, uh, chapter eight, verses one through 17. So if you're one of those that likes to read ahead, which I would encourage you to do because you'll get the most out of these studies by reading ahead of time before you come to Bible study. I would encourage you to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. So it's 8.01. Good time to release folks if they need to take off or collect their young ones. And um, would anybody like to ask, do Q&A?